As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We have a community today that is literally on fire. I went through our uptown area. It looks like Beirut. If they think they are serving some agenda, they are wrong. All they are doing is creating chaos. Everybody involved was out after the curfew. We don't want no more of what we had last night. And then a world of social media has clearly emphasized immediate action over any ability to be calm or deliberate. There's not many scenarios where shooting somebody in the back can be ruled justifiable. We might not know exactly what happened. And this is where it's very important. If he had a body camera on him, it would tell the whole story. I hate to say I told you so, but to the city of Kenosha, I told you so. As a Category 4 hurricane strikes the Gulf Coast, you might think Kenosha, Wisconsin was in its path. Hundreds of buildings are all boarded up in the Badger State's fourth largest city after three nights of rioting, fires, and armed conflicts over the shooting of Jacob Blake finally give way to a single night of peaceful protest. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Fox 6 investigator Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday morning, August 27th. We are joined today by Fox 6 reporter Bill Miston, who is making his Open Record debut. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me this morning. So, Bill, uh... Yeah, Amanda and I have been fortunate enough to not really be in the midst of the of the worst of the things that have been going on in Kenosha. I know you've been down there multiple nights. You've seen last night certainly was different from what we had seen in some of the previous nights. What have you experienced out there since Sunday? Well, first, I, I was not in Kenosha Sunday when this started, but uh, our coworkers obviously were, and we know uh, the extent to which that Things uh, were definitely in a very tenuous situation, even Sunday night, uh, hours after uh, Jacob Blake was shot by a Kenosha police officer. And so uh, for the last three nights, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I've uh, been uh, down in Kenosha and and covering uh, the events of the afternoon and and moving into the evening. And and what could I say about um, what it's been like on the ground? It's definitely been a a different environment uh, than we've seen uh, when it comes to other instances of protests or uh, calls for um, uh, action following uh, an incident such as uh, police shooting. A, a person, uh, and and that's changed, and, and it's changed each night, and I think it uh, escalated to a crescendo, um, to its peak, uh, in what we saw Tuesday night uh, compared to what we saw even uh, Wednesday uh, night. And for people 
who haven't been following this, I know that's hard to imagine because it feels like all eyes are glued on Kenosha right now, but this really started on Sunday night. Uh, Kenosha police responded to what the attorney general says was a call from a woman who said her boyfriend was there and he wasn't supposed to be there. Attorney general won't say whether that boyfriend was Jacob Blake, but they said that when Kenosha police showed up, they did try to arrest Jacob Blake. They used a taser on him. They said that that did not stop him. And that is when Kenosha police officer Rustin Shesky shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times. Jacob Blake is in the hospital right now. His family members say that he's paralyzed at this point. And and that's what kicked off the several nights of a, a mixture of protesting and then the unrest that you described, Bill. Yeah, that's right. And and what I, I think uh, it needs to be uh, clarified for people, because I, I think what it's easy to use the term uh, protesters uh, in a very broad umbrella sense. And uh, ultimately, there are people that are protesting, uh, uh, by and large, uh, calls for social justice and, and policing reform, similar to what we've uh, heard echoed across the country, uh, if not at least back to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis by a Minneapolis police officer. So what some in the community have said over the last uh, several days and things that uh, uh, I have uh, been privy to in conversations with people is that what occurred Sunday uh, for people that live in the Kenosha community was to use a cliche, the straw that broke the camel's back, and just frustrations, especially from communities of color in Kenosha with uh, law enforcement and uh, the judicial system. And what uh, uh, those people say is a heavy-handed approach to uh, these uh, communities, something that might not uh, take place if uh, you were white. Uh, And so one thing that has to be noted then, too, is that by and large, the daytime uh, has been a completely different, and I'm talking specifically about Monday and Tuesday, um, has been a completely different demographic of, of, of people involved from ages, families, races. Uh, you have elderly uh, people that are, uh, say, uh, for those that aren't familiar with Kenosha and where a lot of this has been taking place, it's been taking place uh, uh, outside of the city county government buildings, which are right in the heart of of downtown uh, Kenosha, or just to the west of of the uh, lakefront. And there is a, a park just to the south of the county courthouse where protesters have been uh, kind of uh, meeting and gathering. It's kind of been a, a, a focal point for that and for people to uh, make their voices heard. And so what has been seen during the day is a lot of these different diverse groups of, of people and family. And then as night falls, you see the ages change mostly. You don't see uh, people that are in their middle age or older. Those people go home. The families with children uh, mostly go home. And you then have uh, uh, a lot younger, generally a lot younger uh, a group of people that remain. And uh, from Monday and Tuesday, a curfew was put in place 
uh, at starting at eight o'clock. And what, uh, at least on Monday, even before that curfew went into effect, what seemed to um, provoke protesters uh, uh, from where my position was in talking with people in the park was everything was completely fine on Monday uh, and people were, uh, lack of a better word, hanging out. Uh, and at one point, sheriff's deputies uh, come out of the courthouse in riot gear uh, uh, with batons, helmets. I, I, I can't remember exactly if they had shields at that point. And that immediately turned uh, the ire of the protesters directly towards those officers. And uh, there was a lot of jawing back and forth, but nothing really came of that. And so then as things progressed into the night, that's then when you had the curfew go into place, then things became more heated and those escalated. At times there were fireworks being thrown at the sheriff's deputies um, and there uh, was basically a standoff going uh uh, throughout uh, Monday night. That was the night that we saw more than three dozen fires uh, in the city. Uh, uh, nearly uh, an entire block was uh, raised by fires in the uptown area, uh, which is uh, about 10 blocks west of this city county government area where a lot of this had been focused at. Bill, that's what really stood out to me in, in having gone to Kenosha for the first time yesterday during, you know, since this all broke out. I was there for a daytime live shot, so not when any of the unrest or anything was going on. But as you walk through or drive through downtown Kenosha and see all of the boarded up buildings, and, and I think maybe even more notably the burned up vehicles that were put in place as blockades that are just sitting there charred and burned out, it looked like something out of some of the war footage we've seen in uh, other countries when you see just burned out vehicles left in place and no one doing anything about removing them because there are other priorities. It was like being in a whole different country in some ways. What happened on, on Sunday night, Monday night, and, and then Tuesday night certainly obviously escalated well beyond protest to what I think it's safe to say was, was rioting and violence. Absolutely, it, it got to a point where it was out of control. Now, it's not to say that uh, I'm making a judgment on people uh, taking a stance on civil disobedience, right, of, of staying beyond the curfew. But what I experienced and what uh, our crew uh, saw, especially Monday night, Monday night um, was a very, it was very concerning because um, that side of, of town is an older part of town. So a lot of the streets, it's not a very navigable area. And so there's lots of homes very close together. And you saw uh, a, a massive fire that took place um, uh, just uh, several blocks away from uh, the county government building. And then about 10 blocks farther to the west is when you saw uh, nearly an entire block raised, uh, some historic buildings uh, 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 destroyed, uh, and and what wasn't uh, destroyed by those fires, no doubt, is, is severely damaged. So that was the mindset of what was going into Tuesday, and, and Tuesday we saw Governor Evers uh, declare a state of emergency and um, call up uh, 250 uh, National Guard members to help protect the infrastructure of the city. And, and so that is what we saw going into Tuesday, which then transformed yet again, as we saw this 
go up and up towards uh, yet another crescendo of, of the events over the last several days. Speaking of a crescendo, Bill, I, I think we should mention at this point, too, that some of that violence ended up being fatal. So take us through what happened on Tuesday night. So Tuesday, um, Tuesday was a, a different uh, look, and, and, and it started off yet again in a very uh, metered peaceful manner. Uh, Physical changes, though, I think, Brian, that your words in in starting this off today, it it definitely echoed with me of when you're driving around or walking around and you're seeing uh, places boarded up, it definitely did look like uh, a hurricane, what you would see in a place that is being besieged by a hurricane. And so, Back at the Civic Center Park, which had been the focal point of of a lot of these protests during the day, we saw fencing um, erected around the entire perimeter of the city county government buildings that house the county government, city police department. And that then becoming another focal point for protesters at some point uh, uh, trying to topple over that fencing. There were more uh, law enforcement uh, present. Uh, uh, I, I know I at least saw Sauk County uh, uh, sheriff's deputies, uh, as well as I, I believe Walworth County, and at least a handful, if not more, of uh, MRAPs or armored personnel carriers that were on site. And so, yet again, once the eight o'clock curfew began, there was more of a standoff with these these law enforcement officers that were. Uh, standing behind the fencing, and then at some point the law enforcement then begins to clear uh, the park with uh, the armored vehicles, tear gas, and pepper gas. And and I I forgot to mention, um, tear gas or CS gas uh, was deployed Monday night as well. So we saw uh, chemical irritants uh, being deployed uh, on protesters, on people, I should say, people who remain past the curfew uh, and trying to disperse that crowd. And uh, so once that crowd was dispersed, it wasn't long after on Monday night that we started to get word of all these fires. Now, this was the concern going into Tuesday night. If this follows the same playbook, will there be a similar result of, okay, the crowd is dispersed? And that was how we were going into the night of thinking not only is what what is being covered during the day, but how does this change during the night? So and it's it seems, Bill, that that's really what prompted some of the local citizens to sort of take up this call to arms uh, that, that we now know was instituted actually by a former Kenosha alderman named Kevin Mathewson, who actually called on people to come out and protect the city, uh, saying the police are overwhelmed, they're not doing the job, so let's get out there and do this. That was Tuesday evening, and it seems like that's really when this thing took a particularly dangerous turn. Yeah, and and a turn in a completely different direction than what uh, we were maybe expecting based on what we had seen Monday night. And Tuesday, it's worth noting, that's the first time that we heard from Jacob Blake's family, uh, and attorneys representing uh, the family and his mother, uh, who made some very emotional, and father, making, and, and uh, Jacob Blake's sisters, making some very uh, emotional and impassioned statements, not only calling for uh, transparency and, and justice surrounding 
this incident, but also his mother being completely uh, dejected by looking and seeing at what had taken place Monday night. So there was a call for peace uh, for what had taken place Monday night, but then that that moment, uh, those, those events from Monday night, completely transplanted by something different than what we saw Tuesday night with uh, three people uh, being shot, two of them killed, uh, in what uh, police say uh, uh, a person that's been arrested in connection to that uh, is a 17-year-old uh, man from Illinois who is waiting extradition back to uh, Wisconsin to uh, uh, be uh, have charges presented in that case. So we, we know by now that he was someone who was very pro-police and had made a lot of statements on social media. I think he was involved in a police cadet program. And there is some suggestion, certainly strong suggestion, he was motivated by whether it was specifically uh, Kevin Matthewson's Kenosha Guard and their call to arms or other groups that were similarly calling for citizens to come and protect the city. He came out, obviously, things escalated. Amanda, I want to ask you because you were... Uh, there yesterday as we're finally starting to hear now about what law enforcement is saying about the investigation of the incident that started all of this, which is obviously the shooting of Jacob Blake. And, and we really hadn't heard from law enforcement until Wednesday, three days after this incident. What are they saying now, Amanda? And, and, and what did you make of their, their word choices? Yeah. So first, here's how this process works for people who aren't familiar. Wisconsin has a state department of justice. The state department of justice does the investigation. The idea is that you're having a party outside of the police department because we, we've seen when police investigate themselves, uh, it's a ripe situation for conflict of interest. So Department of Justice does the investigation. When they are done with the investigation, they then turn over the results to the local district attorney. The local district attorney can appoint a special prosecutor if he himself has a conflict of interest. Um, but in this case, it doesn't sound like that's what he wants to do. Um, he doesn't believe he has a conflict of interest. He then decides whether there are charges. And then at the same time, the district attorney has asked for the federal government to open up their own investigation into this to happen simultaneously, and that investigation has been opened. So there are a few different investigating agencies here. What we got yesterday was an update from the State Department of Justice that led by Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call. So they're still doing this investigation. It's ongoing. But they said they were able to give us some information because they've interviewed the material witnesses. They feel like releasing some of that information at this point will not compromise their investigation. So that's when we learned the name of the officer who shot Jacob Blake. That's uh, Kenosha officer Rustin Chesky. He's been with the department for about seven years. Before that, he was with UW Parkside Police for about three years. And he uh, is someone who at this point is one of those material witnesses who has been interviewed. Uh, and we learned a little more about what happened leading up to the shooting of Jacob Blake, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions. So, for example, a lot has been made about whether Jacob Blake had a knife and whether police thought he had a knife and whether that led up to the shooting. It, and this is where, uh, and 
Bill, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. I've been doing a lot of thinking about how we as journalists handle cop speak. So the attorney general's press release says that Jacob Blake later admitted during the course of the investigation to having a knife in his possession. Now, when you read that, that sure sounds like the guy had a knife on him. What happened, though, and this is why we have press conferences where we can ask people questions, uh, what happened was agents later found a knife in the floorboard of his car. And the attorney general won't answer questions about whether police saw that knife or thought they saw a knife. He said that he believes that would compromise the investigation if he were to answer those questions at this point. Uh, But having a knife in the floorboard of your car is very different than having a knife on your person. So it's easy. Well, and I, I, I obviously the reason why that's of such interest is the, the really the primary question in all of this for everyone who's seen this video is we know the officer shot him in the back. You can see it. That's plain. That is not something that's in question because there was a citizen with a cell phone. We know this officer shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times. The question is, why and was there any sort of a threat that he felt that would have justified it and so the issue of whether he was armed and whether officers knew that is obviously critical that is and the district attorney says the one question he has kind of a narrow scope to look at this when the investigation is done is is there a criminal charge i can bring that a i can convince a jury of beyond a reasonable doubt and that speaking to a, a few other DAs that I've interviewed in the past, that's their frustration in a lot of these cases because they'll look at some of these and say, OK, yeah, what this police officer did was wrong. But the way the law is set up, can I get a, a jury to believe this beyond a reasonable doubt? And does this fit as far as the statutory crimes go? So that's something that the district attorney will be examining. Now, he said that the reason he wants the federal government to also do their civil rights investigation at the same time is he would like the decisions about all of this to happen at the same time. Because if it's a decision people don't like, and if there's unrest because of that decision, he doesn't want that to happen first with the DA's decision and then three months later again with the federal government decision. He wants everything to happen at the same time. He called it closure for the community. So that was discussed a lot during this press conference. Bill, I want to ask you because you've been out there and so obviously you've heard what many of the people who are either peacefully protesting or the agitators who come out later and are causing disruptions. I'm sure you're hearing what they are saying. Uh, But when, when we talk about was Jacob Blake armed with a knife or not was he reaching was you know for a gun in the car did police think so we know now they didn't find one um and we also know that you know were they there for him or were they called for someone else involved in a domestic disturbance it appears it was for jacob blake at this point we know he had a warrant for his arrest at that same location involving a woman who now identifies herself as his fiance um but what what we've certainly heard from some and i would imagine you're hearing it too is those who say it doesn't matter We don't care if they thought he had a knife. We don't care if he was there for a domestic disturbance. We don't care if they were trying to arrest him. There's no excuse for shooting him in the back. Are you hearing similar things like that? Or what are protesters saying when you've been out in the midst of all this? Yeah, I would have to say that in conversations with people and just there's a sense of frustration 
there's that sense of frustration, especially when I'm speaking with people of color, uh, African-Americans that I've been speaking to, because when it comes to trying to get an idea of the sense of the community, it, this is the community that has been impacted by this uh, most severely. And there's a sense of frustration and an exasperation as to seeing what happened to Jacob Blake being shot seven times in the back. And in the, the most widely circulated video, there isn't much footage that precedes the culmination of, of that uh, 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 interaction with the shooting of Jacob Blake. Um, and at the end of the day, when people, when we learned that the taser that was used uh, did not work uh, and weapons were drawn, there's still questions from even those in the community of going, why were the weapons even drawn? Um, was he a threat? Um, why didn't the taser work? Why couldn't he have been tackled? Why couldn't the car door have been shut? Uh, because there, as Jacob Blake moves around the SUV in that video, it's, I'm going to have to describe this, but as Jacob Blake moves around that SUV and to get into the vehicle of which his children are sitting in, um, the, he is within about an arm's length away or so from uh, uh, Officer Chesky, um, and was grabbing his shirt. I mean, we see he's able to actually reach and, and grab his shirt. And, and once uh, Blake opens the door, Shesky moves around and grabs Blake's shirt. And that's when the gunshots start. So there's still just some questions of when you look at the video from people in the community and they go, did he have a knife on him or did he have anything that would prompt officers to pull a weapon in the first place? If he was of that big of a concern, he's walking away. Why is the weapon pulled and why isn't he tackled? Why is... Well, and, and Bill, you raise a great question here that's one that may go uh, unanswered, at least in the way that this citizen video answers so many questions for us. And that is, if there was, at the time when the taser was deployed... If, in fact, for instance, Jacob Blake made a threat that he was going to get a weapon or that he had a weapon in the car and was going to retrieve it. And I know there have been some people who've speculated that that may have been what happened. I don't know if there's anything to that, but that very speculation could be easily answered by a body camera on the police officers. But we know Kenosha police don't have body cameras, even though their city council passed a resolution three years ago to say we should be getting body cameras for our officers. That was 2017, and they're still a couple of years away from doing that. Now, I know, Amanda, you were uh, interviewing the attorney general yesterday um, after his press conference. What did he say about the state of body cameras, not just in Kenosha, but across the state of Wisconsin? He put it on the legislature. He pretty squarely said the legislature needs to dedicate more funding to help police departments get this, which is interesting because we're in an era, we've talked on this podcast before about the idea of defunding police. And he's saying the legislature needs to give police departments funding so that these body cameras are more accessible. Brian, you had put together a list of the 20 biggest Wisconsin police departments. And at, by the looks of that list, nearly half of them 
don't have body cameras, a lot of them cite the cost. So if the largest police departments, which presumably have more resources, are having trouble with this, you'd also think it's an issue for the smaller police departments. Now, Department of Justice doesn't track who has body cameras. Well, that's I was going to point that out. I mean, you asked them that you because it would be great for us to be able to say, we have on our website a list of all the police departments in Wisconsin. Here's the ones that have them and here's the ones that don't. But there are hundreds and hundreds of different departments, police departments, sheriff's departments, um, agencies like State Fair Park Police. And the DOJ doesn't track that. And you ask them that, they said they don't. And so who does track it? Maybe the vendors who sell them. I was able to put together a list of the top 20 departments because it's not hard to find news articles about whether or not an individual community has these because when a community looks at adding body cameras it's something that goes through their uh, their city council or whatever council there might be it goes through the government body to talk about funding and so it becomes something that, that's in the news so it wasn't hard to find it would take searching four or five hundred different community newspapers and publications uh, and, and television archives to find this stuff out but we don't know. So I was able to assemble this sort of top 20 list relatively easily. It would be nice to give a statewide picture. It's a bit alarming, I think, with the importance we've seen of what body cameras can provide in terms of evidence in officer involved shootings and evidence in other cases that uh, that we don't know who ha has them and who doesn't. And moreover, that no one's really watching that. Are you surprised by that, Amanda? I was surprised that the Department of Justice doesn't track this because there are a lot of things they do track and there's a lot of information that police departments are required to submit to the Department of Justice. Now, police departments are they can be their own little fiefdoms. They don't have to answer to the Department of Justice for everything, but they do have certain required reporting information. So that did surprise me. And the the attorney general kind of brush that off onto the legislature. And uh, the governor has called a special session for the legislature to deal with some of these police issues. Uh, the Republican leaders in the legislature say they want to assemble this task force. Democrats seem pretty chilly to that idea. So as far as systemic reforms go, it will be interesting to see if anything happens because that will require some agreement from people who tend to not agree very often. And and Bill, I'm sure that this has been reflected as you've been speaking with people who are protesting and demonstrating. The, the people I've spoken to are tired of what they view as the same thing happening over and over. How many press conferences have we seen uh, after an officer has shot someone? There's a feeling that hey, you managed to de-escalate these situations when it's a white person involved and, and less so when, when there's a black person involved. And so when we're talking about systemic reform, that, that's where uh, it, it gets tricky, especially when politics get involved. And it's worth noting, too, that uh, to touch on the, the body-worn cameras issue is that even if some departments do have them, not all officers may be equipped with them. Certain patrol officers might have them. The body-worn cameras might only be for, say, motorcycle uh, cops. So, and, and there's a very, when uh, the attorney general puts the issue of body-worn cameras on the legislature and we talk about the funding of that, it is a very expensive step for uh, communities to take, even those that might have the resources or the ability 
to fund those and various mechanisms to implement them in the city. So uh, to then talk about how body-worn cameras can provide context and perspective to when these incidents happen, that is a lot of times when I'm talking with people, they say all we want to do, especially people of color, all we want to do is be treated equally. Why is it that we saw what happened to Jacob Blake happen again and again and again, but when it comes to a white person with a knife, and I'm not saying Jacob Blake has a knife, but what I'm saying is is just in general, these incidents end far differently. And that is where a lot of that frustration comes in and and why uh, some of the people that I've been speaking to, you know, say that shooting video of almost any interaction with police officers is a way to cover themselves or protect others because who knows what is going to happen or how the narrative is going to be changed because when, Amanda, you were talking about police speak and parsing the information in that uh, press release, um, not everything that is said by officials can be counted as how it actually happened or how how that narrative is being created and having to parse through that information to get to ultimately the truth. And that's something, quite frankly, we, and I say we as like the collective group of journalists, could be better at because there is a tendency to accept what, to report what police say as though it is gospel truth. And, And the reality is police are, it's a public agency, it's a form of government, and we know that While there are good people who serve in every government agency, there are also times when we catch people in government misrepresenting the truth or spinning something or lying. And so that's something that we need to be on guard of so that we are treating this information fairly and and cutting through the spin, but also making sure what happened is clear. When we use conversational language, it's not just because it sounds better. It's because we're trying to be clear for people about what happened because what we say and how we say it matters in terms of setting public perception. Well, and when you talk about the body cameras, I want to point out, you you mentioned, Amanda, that I did interview a couple of people in Kenosha about this, and one of them was Alderman Rocco Lamaccia. He's 63 years old. He's lived in Kenosha his entire life, and he's been an alderman for a long time. He is also one of the people who signs off on the public safety budget each year, and so he knows that there's been $200,000 set aside for body cameras that has been moved back year after year, and it's still now sitting in the budget for 2022 in their capital improvement plan when it was originally supposed to be something they would have in place already by this year. And I asked him about that. He, he said, as you pointed out, Bill, these things are expensive. They cost a lot of money. And so sometimes budget priorities, you have to make other decisions. In, in their case, they built a new firehouse and they set this money aside. And, and it's not to say the firehouse wasn't needed. But when he talks about expense, if you really look at Kenosha right now, they're potentially facing an awfully much more expensive payout if, in fact, this turns out to be an unjustified police shooting of Jacob Blake. And if, in fact, there's something a body camera could have captured that might have given credence to whatever the officer's point of view is going to be on this, perhaps it's the kind of thing that that not only answers a lot of questions, but saves the city a ton of money. So body cameras aren't just there to hold police accountable. It's there to hold really everyone accountable, to hold the truth accountable. It's, it's sometimes there to protect officers. And one of the things I asked him was, we're in a day and age now where 
vehicles are expensive. Squad cars are expensive. It's really expensive to have the computers they have in squad cars. But there is not a single police department in the country that doesn't have squad cars or that doesn't have computers in their squad cars because it's just the cost of doing business. And I asked him, are body cameras ultimately going to be part of the necessary police equipment for every agency? And he said, yeah, I think so. Probably. The question is, where does that funding come from? Is that something the federal government's going to kick in? Is the state going to help out? Is every community going to be left to do this individually at a time when people are calling for cuts in the police budget? I think it's a big question left to be answered, but this is one of those cases that really highlights why body cameras are so important because there will be questions that are either left unanswered or are left for us to either trust or not trust those who are telling us what happened that we can't see in that citizen video. But getting back to sort of where things are right now, Bill, you were there last night. You've seen how things uh, have escalated on previous nights. And I was watching your Twitter feed and, and you showed videos from, I think it was Tuesday night at whatever time it was versus last night at whatever time it was. Very different scene. Finally, last night, we know that the National Guard had more of a presence. Um, obviously, there was that extreme violence on Tuesday night. Maybe that had something to do with it. Ultimately, did you get a feel like this thing has 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 passed the tipping point and is calming down? Or, or, or what is your overall sense of where we are right now? Wednesday night uh, was a polar opposite uh, from what occurred Tuesday night uh, into the early morning hours. Uh, if, if the terrible, tragic events of the shooting of three people, killing of two of them Tuesday night, uh, was a 12 on the spectrum. Last night was, in, in my mind, a, a 1 or a, a negative 1. Uh, there were still people out in defying curfew. Uh, there were even some protesters 15 minutes before the curfew, which was moved up to 7 p.m., there were protesters that gathered in the park and said, hey, look, if you stay beyond, beyond curfew, that's on you. You have nothing to do with us. But that whatever happens then later in the night, that does not represent us, represent our city. And so there, there were some clear uh, delineations made uh, by some of the protesters early on, but people did stay and they did disobey the curfew of 7 p.m. That said, though, a lot less presence of law enforcement, uh, at least I should say uniformed and marked law enforcement, uh, Wednesday night. Um, protesters mo mostly gathered in Civic Center Park. Uh, they ended up going on a march down to Uptown and then back to uh, the, the park again and, and just hung out there, really. Uh, and then they went on another short march uh, with a small caravan of, of vehicles behind them. Uh, but while out and covering this march, it was clear that there were, if not uh, federal officers, state undercover, unmarked vehicles, uh, civilian vehicles with no license plates, uh, covered up license plates from out of state, uh, with uh, uh, operators, really, men in um, military gear um, that uh, were uh, in these vehicles and that were, uh, just as uh, myself and my crew uh, 
were covering these marches were also moving ahead of them and monitoring them from a distance. And, and from when we left last night, there were no uh, altercations or interactions between law enforcement or, or the people that had stayed beyond curfew and were marching last night uh, calling for And obviously, justice. we really hope that that's the way this continues, uh, just for the community's safety and for our own crew's safety. I know it's been, a, a, at times, a, a tenuous situation. Bill, thank you for not only your coverage of all of this, but for joining us here on Open Record, and we look forward to having you back again in the future. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Amanda. So we're going to continue bringing you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic, the unrest in Kenosha, and so much more. If there's a topic you want us to discuss or an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email, and I have to do this one more time. You know if you've been listening to our podcast, we've had some ongoing issues with our email address as we've changed hands in ownership and had some technology changes. We finally have, I am told, settled on a specific email address for the Fox 6 investigators. This should be it going forward. Any of the previous ones we've told you will still work, but this is it going forward, so add it to your uh, email Rolodex, so to speak. It is fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. Thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith, and Bill Miston once again. Thank you for coming on Open Record and taking us through everything you've been seeing and experiencing. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. Tuesday.